studying world religions, and um, Christianity is the only religion, the only belief system in the history of the world where they said, here's the one central factor. If you disprove this one thing, then Christianity is worthless. And what that was, was the resurrection of Jesus. And through the centuries, people have tried to disprove Christianity, and everyone who sincerely tried to disprove the resurrection has ended up being becoming a Christian, a Christ follower. And really, you can, you can summarize the difference in Christianity and every other belief system in two words. It's what we call do versus done. Every other belief system that's ever existed, it, it involves a human being trying to become a better person and follow a set of rules and regulations so that some higher being, maybe called God, maybe called something else, so that some higher being would then look down with favor on you because you've done just enough good. If you did bad, then, then that God or higher being would reject you. But if you did enough good to offset your bad, then that, that God or higher being would kind of wink at you and say, oh, it's okay, all your bad stuff, it's okay, come on into heaven. So all of these others, it's what you do that earns you favor in God's eyes or what you don't do earns you favor in God's eyes. Christianity is the only belief system spelled D-O-N-E. Done based on what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross. You cannot earn God's favor. The Bible says that we all, even our best deeds are like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. So you cannot earn your way into heaven. Christianity says, I base my, my life, my, my hope for life after death. I base that on a relationship with what Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross because he finished the work. It's all done. I can't do anything except bow in humility and reverence and ask God to let me into heaven based on what his son has already done. Does that make sense? Do versus done. Everything else can be classified a religion. Christianity is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're looking at these words of Jesus on the cross and he's paying the most, um, the most difficult, highest price that you can imagine to purchase human beings from their sin, the bondage of sin. And uh, it's a very, very high price. We've talked about this for several weeks now. He was beaten beyond recognition. Um, he was beaten on the head with a rod. He was uh, hit in the face with, with punches. He was spat upon. He uh, had this cat of nine tails, this whip that, that he was beaten 39 times with, and it was so sharp that he probably had internal organs exposed because of this. And then in the midst of all that, he's nailed to a cross, and people are making fun of him, all kinds of things. And we pick up the story in John nineteen twenty eight. As man did his worst to an innocent man, Jesus, God was at his best. Look what he says. Later, knowing that all was now completed so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, we looked specifically at the I am thirsty statement last, last week, but I want to expound on it just a little bit. Jesus is just about to die, but there was one prophecy that had not been fulfilled. In the Old Testament, there's all of these prophecies, and, and it depends on who you, who you read, how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament. There's at least 50 major prophecies about Messiah. There are others that get up to over 100 that talk about what Messiah is going to say and what Messiah is going to do. And there's even some people that believe there's as many as 330 prophecies in the Old Testament that relate to Messiah. Regardless of whether there's 50 major or 100 or 330, Jesus fulfilled them all. But he's hanging on the cross and there's one prophecy that has not been fulfilled yet. Something in the Old Testament, one of the prophets wrote and said that Messiah would be given vinegar to drink. And that's what's going on right here. Look what happens in the next verse. Verse 29. 
A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, why in the world would there be a jar of sour vinegar wine there? Well, you have to understand what was going on. This is kind of cool, too, because when it was predicted in the Old Testament that, that Messiah would be given vinegar wine to drink, they hadn't even invented crucifixion yet as a form of execution. But when they started this execution thing, what would happen is people would suffocate on the cross because they couldn't pull themselves up to breathe. Their, the, the weight of the body would, would ha- hamper their uh, lungs. They wouldn't be able to breathe. And it was a very, very strenuous activity just lifting yourself up over and over to get a breath. So Jesus was physically thirsty. They had vinegar there, though, because crucifixion was designed as a form of torture. They wanted to prolong the person's life on the cross, but they didn't want to give them any comfort. So it was liquid that would parch, uh, that would quench a little bit of their thirst, but it was a nasty liquid. So when the, the guard is reaching over there with the sponge, putting the vinegar, sour vinegar wine on it, lifting up to Jesus' lips, his idea was, let's have a little bit more fun with him. Jesus' idea that was, though, I'm fulfilling the last prophecy about Messiah before I give up my life. Their purposes were completely different. And then look what happens. As soon as he takes the drink, John chapter 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, what? It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That means he died. It is finished are the greatest three words in the Bible. The most incredible three words in the Bible. And uh, our, uh, I don't believe that Jesus said this in a timid way. Even though he was just about to die. How many of you have seen Braveheart? William Wallace? What does he say at the end? What does he scream at the end? Freedom! I believe Jesus recognizes that everything is done. That his plan has been completed. That God's plan, he's followed it perfectly. I believe with every ounce of strength Jesus had left, he pushed himself up and he said, Tetelestai! We get the phrase, it is finished. But he sat, he cried out, Tetelestai, it's done. God, everything you sent me to do has been done. It's finished. It's completed. I'm coming home. And he screamed out, Tetelestai. Now, if you have your listening guide, let's define this word. It means to end or complete or to discharge a debt. And in the Jewish society, this had a, a depth of meaning and it was used in a variety of ways. For instance, it can mean when a servant comes to his master and the servant says, Tetelestai, he means I have completed everything you as my master gave me to do. There's no more job to do. I've finished. Tetelestai is what the servant would say to his master. It can be used as a merchant declares. If you buy something from someone and you, you buy it on credit, then you would pay that off. When it was done, the merchant would say, Tetelestai, you have paid your debt in full. Or it could be when the priest would examine the, the animals for sacrifice. You had to bring a perfect animal, not a spot, not a blemish on it, in order to uh, kill that animal for sacrifice so that the blood of the animal could cover your sins and, and guilty sinners could go free. If the priest examined the, the lamb or the goat or whatever it was you brought, he examined it and he would say, Tetelestai, this is perfect. There is no more examination need to be done. You can use this animal as the sacrifice for your sins. This is the word Jesus cries out before God. To tell us die. Your work, God, is complete and the world will never be the same. And some of you are going to be thinking, well, okay. He says, it is finished. It is finished. What exactly did he finish? Well, we're going to get real specific today and show you some of the things that he 
finished. In the Old Testament, I told you, there's all of these prophecies. Where we're going to look very quickly at 15 of these prophecies, and we're going to see how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. Here's the first one. Amos 8, 9, God is speaking. He says, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will turn daylight into darkness. It was fulfilled. Matthew 27, 45. Next one. Isaiah 53, 3. He's talking about Messiah. He says, he was despised and rejected by men. Fulfilled. John 1, John 7. Next one. Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend has turned against me. Fulfilled. When Judas turned against Jesus. In Luke chapter 22 and John chapter 13. Next one. Isaiah 52, 14. He didn't even look human. A ruined face disfigured past recognition. It was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 26. Next. Isaiah 56, they insulted me and spit in my face. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, 30. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded and crushed because of our sins. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, 26. Psalm 22, 7, all who seek me, make fun of me, insults pour from their mouths. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, 31. It says everyone went by and cast insults at him. Zechariah 13, 7, strike down the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. This is talking about Messiah. And he's saying, if you take out the shepherd, then everybody who follows the Messiah will be scattered. It was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 31, when Jesus' disciples ran away in hidden fear because Jesus had been taken and was being crucified. Isaiah 53, 12, he bore the sins of many and pled with God for sinners. This is one when he's talking on the cross, when he's dying on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. That's when it was fulfilled because he was praying for sinners while he is dying for sinners. Isaiah 53, 12, he willingly gave his life and shared the fate of evil men. You may have heard it in a different translation. He was numbered among the transgressors. We know that Jesus wasn't the only one crucified that day. He had a, a thief on his right and on his left. And crucifixion was reserved for the worst murderers and traitors to society. Jesus was counted. He, was, he shared the fate of evil men. He was counted among them. Matthew 27, 38. Psalm twenty two eighteen. they took my clothes and they gambled for them. If you read the Easter story, you know in John 19, the, the guards cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Psalm 34, 20, not one of his bones is broken. Fulfilled in John 19, 33. Jesus was already dead. They would break bones so that they could no longer push themselves up and breathe. They got to Jesus. He was already dead, so not one of his bones was broken. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We looked at that one a few weeks ago. Fulfilled, Matthew 27, 46. Psalm twenty two sixteen. they have pierced my hands and my feet. Again, this was hundreds of years before they even invented crucifixion. And it was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 31. Psalm 69, 21, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And you saw it's fulfilled in a couple of places there. Is that the last one? Now, Jesus finished all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And you might be thinking, well, okay, big deal. People could have done that maybe by accident. Maybe he stumbled into some of these things. Maybe he'd read, and I know he did. He read the Old Testament. He had it memorized. Maybe he did all these things by accident. Well, let me show you the odds that Jesus would fulfill just seven of the major prophecies. Here's one. Jesus would be a descendant of David. Now, mathematicians have done these statistics, and you can read books, and I've read books about this. But let me give you the most conservative statistics that we found. One in 10,000. So that would be 10 to the fourth power that Jesus would be a descendant of David. Number two, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, one in one, uh, uh, 100,000, that's 10 to the fifth. Jesus would cleanse the temple, one in 100,000. I think that's very conservative because he'd be killed if he came into the temple and did something he wasn't supposed to be uh, doing there. 
Jesus would present himself as a king riding on a donkey. One in a million. That's ten to the sixth. Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The odds of that happening are one in a million. Jesus would be crucified. One in a million. Jesus, this one blew my mind. And I had to go back and look this up and make sure this was accurate. Jesus would first present himself as king. Present himself, ride in on a donkey... 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem. If you want to study this, go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Get out commentaries and study this. This is, this is to the day. 173,880 days from when Artaxerxes, a, a pagan king, said that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and that a king would present himself. And, and this was a prophecy uttered by someone who wasn't even a, a God follower. And Jesus shows up 173,880 days later and sits on a donkey and he's presented as king. This is not an accident. You want to know what the odds are that Jesus would fulfill all of these seven prophecies? Forget the, the 50 major prophecies, that just these seven. One in 100 billion, 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 billion. You can't fathom that. I can't fathom that number. So let me just put a little uh, little uh, story to it. If we were to take this number, that's 10 to the 38th power. If we were to take this number of silver dollars, scatter them all over the state of Texas, it would cover the entire state two feet deep. Now let's say before we scatter them, we take one silver dollar, we put this big fat X on the back. We mix them all up and then we scatter them out evenly two feet deep, all over the state of Texas. We take one volunteer from this room. We blindfold you. We spin you around. And we tell you, you can walk any direction for as long as you want to walk. And you must stop and pick up one coin, one silver dollar. And the odds that you would pick up the one that has the X on it are the same odds that someone might accidentally have fulfilled seven of the 50 major prophecies about Messiah. Don't you ever think this was an accident. God planned every bit of the details and he came at just the right time, 173,880 days. Oh my goodness, this is, this is intentional. God had a plan before the world was ever made. Are you beginning to understand the significance of what Jesus said? It is finished. It is finished. Jesus finished them all. Now, this is the greatest news ever that Jesus finished the work. That's the best news. But I got some bad news for you today. Jesus is finished, but you're not. On your listening guide, there's a statement there. I want you to fill this in. I have unfinished business. Now, just out of curiosity, let me see how many people are breathing today. Let me see your hands if you're breathing. Everyone who's breathing, you have unfinished business. God is not through with you yet. I want you to look at uh, Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is giving this um, vision these, to uh, John when he's on the island of Patmos. And he says this. This is actually a message to one of the churches that he's talking about in Revelation. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. And here it is. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. This could be a message to every Christ follower I've ever met, every Christ follower I've ever heard about, who will, I will meet in the future. Your works, your deeds are not complete while you still have breath. Until you are put in the ground, your deeds for God are not complete. 
In June, we'll celebrate the nine-year anniversary of New Life Community Church. And when we started this church, we met in a little bitty, uh, we met what, where Verizon now is down there. It used to be Cook's Automotive, and then it was Rounders, and, and it was Tammy's 57 Heaven, and it's been all of these different things. Well, it, for six months, that was New Life Community Church, and we met with 23 or 24 people the very first night we were there. People said, Palestine has enough churches. You will never make it. I had people asking me to leave, go to other cities to do this church because they thought this church would be in competition with other churches around here. I said, I don't even want church people at my church. I want to get people who are far from God. If church people happen to come, that's between them and God. I'm not actively seeking church people. And people said, you're nuts. This will not work. And for nine years, we've had people say, it won't work. It won't work. You can't do church like that. You can't do church like that. In June 22nd, June 22nd, nine years. God has brought us to this point. We have our own building. We have twice the the amount of land when we bought this building just a couple of years ago. We're over halfway paying off this building. We're going to raise money to build a new building. God is not finished with us yet. And my unfinished business is to reach people who are far from God and help them connect with God and with other people. I don't think we're finished reaching people. I don't think we're finished growing people up. That is my unfinished business. But you have unfinished business too. And I want to know what that is. Well, I want you to know what that is. I don't have to know what that is. I want you to know what that unfinished business is. So on your listening guide, there's a place. When I say you have unfinished business, I want you to write down the first thing you think of. What has God called you to do that you have not done? It could be forgive someone. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It could be finish college. It could be be baptized and join the church. We're going to have a baptism service in just a few weeks. If you haven't ever been baptized by immersion, come see me. We'll, we want to get you signed up for that. It could be to tithe or, or get out of debt or go on a mission trip. What do you know God has called you to do that you have not done? I want you to write that down. Take just a couple of seconds. Think about that. Ask God. If you don't know, you say to God, what, is, what am I supposed to do? And then you write down what God says to you. Now, a lot of people start well, but very few people finish well. And what I want to talk to you about the next couple of minutes is how to be a good finisher, how to finish what God wants you to do. First of all, first thing you've got to do is make a commitment. We say this all the time. You become what you are committed to. If I'm committed to a good marriage, I have a great marriage. I happen to think I have a great marriage because I'm committed to my wife and she's committed to me. You become what you're committed to. If you're committed to getting in shape, you'll get in shape. If you're committed, oh, my soul, we, I sinned so badly yesterday. Janie's family's in town for, for Easter extravaganza, and, and I, I ate six or seven desserts yesterday just because I could, not because I was hungry. We would go out and play in the yard, and I'd think, man, that dessert's just calling my name. And so I was committed to dessert yesterday, but I've got to be committed to a whole lot of... Uh, of uh, exercise this next week because I didn't even get on the scale today. Normally, I, you know, I've gotten kind of into that health kick and I get on the scale every day and I see how much I knew. I said, Lord, I don't want to know. You've already convicted me. Now, you become what you're committed to. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 11. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth and he says, Sal, no. so now, Sal, no. so now finish the work you started. And I love this translation. Then your doing will equal your wanting to do. You know the difference in doing and wanting to do? Uh Uh-huh. 
Too many people are eager to do something and willing to do nothing. Y'all probably remember from your history lessons the story of Hernando Cortez when he sailed from Spain with 11 ships and 700 men to, to find the, to discover the new world. Everyone got on the ship wanting to do something great. Everyone wanted to uh, discover the new land. Everyone probably wanted to do something for their country. They wanted to find some fame and some fortune in the new country. But when they got to the new country, they soon discovered there were unforeseen problems that crept up, mainly natives there who were not friendly to them. And wanted to chop their heads off. And so Cortez's men started whining and complaining. And they started talking to one another. And they'd say, I want to go home. I don't like the food. I don't like someone chasing me trying to cut my head off. I want to go home. Their wanting to do had gone out the window because it was hard. So when Cortez hears about this, you know what he did? He said, burn the ships. So they burned the ships. Now, when their way of escape was gone, what do you think that did to their commitment? Either you get committed or you die. Man, it ramped up their commitment. And what we need to do as Christ followers is draw a line in the sand and say, this is where I'm going to start and I'm not going back there. They couldn't go home if they wanted to because he burned the ships. There's all kinds of biblical examples of that. Um, when, when Elijah was called, or when Elisha was called to follow Elijah, he, he went and, and butchered the oxen that he was plowing with and burned the, the, uh, Yoke that went around the oxen's neck. There's all kinds of of examples of that. What you need to do is figure out what God has called you to do and step across that line and say, I'm not going back to who I used to be or what I used to do. I am going to ramp up my commitment. Their commitment suddenly got to be commitment on steroids when they could no longer flee on the ships. And they began to discover some things in the new land. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't want to do what God had asked him to do. If you've read the story, you know that he went to the garden to pray and he prayed over and over and he asked God to take away. Here's what he said in, in Luke twenty two forty two: Father, if you are willing, please take away the cup of horror. That's a different translation than you may have seen before. This cup of horror from me, but I want your will, not mine. Here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to quit doing this church. How many times stuff would happen and, and Janie and I would, would pray and cry together, and we were done. I'm like, I can't do it anymore. Can't do it. And before morning would come, God would say, quit trying to do it in your power. And I'm not done with you yet. And I'd get up the next morning, and I'd say, Janie, I'd say, okay, I'm back in. I can't quit. Can't walk away. Until I die, I can't walk away. I'm not saying your path is not going to be difficult. But Jesus was on his knees Sweating drops of blood. And he said, God, I don't want to do this. But then the key. Not my will. You want to move towards maturity? You begin to pray, not my will, God, but your will be done. And God says, got you where I want you. Now let's see what we can do through you. Second thing you got to do is you got to take the next step. We, uh, we love going to Red River, New Mexico. Uh, we haven't been there in a couple of years. We, we hope to go in the summer of 2012. And we stay at the base of the main mountain. And, and when I say mountain, it, it is a mountain. It's in the Rockies. Red River is not a very big place to go skiing. But it's several thousand feet from the base of the mountain to the top of the mountain. And, and the first year we, we got there, uh, Hannah was nine, I think, at that time. Um, or No, you were probably even younger than that. It was several years ago. And, and we get there and we're like, let's climb it. 
Because the thing is, it, it costs money to ride the ski lift up and back down. But if you climb to the top, you get to ride down for free. So like, let's do it. And, and it sucked, first part of the trip. And there's all kinds of stuff that happened there. We hid under a bulldozer when, whenever um, it started to hail. And um, then when it started lightning, we're like, much metal. We got to get out of here. You know, long story. But we made it to the top. Actually, that's funny, too, because Janie was really, really tired by the time. And so we were kind of walking ahead of her. And we got on the backside of the mountain. And, and uh, that's the only way to get up to the top. And we're over there. And, and we just keep getting farther and farther away. We're just talking. I'm thinking, why is Janie hanging back? She's like, y'all go on, y'all go on. Well, later she tells me when she gets to the top of the mountain, she thought, she starts thinking around going, you know, this would be a great place for a bear. And she said, if I were a bear, I'd be hanging out here because you couldn't hear anything from the city and it was nice and cool. And she's, she's saying to the Lord, Lord, if there's a bear, I'll be bear food. Save my family. I, I'm tired. I can't go on. So just, and I'm like, dude. <laughs> but we made it to the top. Next year we came back and we did better. And nobody was bear food the second year. But here's the thing. You know how you climb a mountain? One step at a time. First year, we were sucking wind by the time we got to the top. We had all this water. It was all gone. Second year, we figured out we did it much better. But when we got to the top, the view was incredible. And that's what got us to do it the second year. We want to go back up there. Your journey is going to have some mountaintops in it. But you got to start. And here's what I see too often from Christ followers. What's the next step? Well, God tells me the next step. So I take that step. Okay, I'm done. Six months later. Step one. Okay, I'm done. Maybe go to youth camp. I don't know about that one. Some of you have been repeating step one for the past ten years. And you're wondering why you don't feel close to God? It's because you're not. God calls you to take a step. And then God calls you to take another step. And He gives you the power to take that step. And you take another step. You obey because it's the right thing to do. Not because it's convenient. God says step one. You say, God, by your power, I'll take step one. Step two, God, by your power, I'll take step two. And then before you know it, you get a little bit down the road and you go, I feel the presence of God. Maybe the reason you've not felt the presence of God in some time is because you are disobedient to step one. So what is it? What is your next step? There's all kinds of options. And see here, I want you to see that this whole idea of one step at a time, it's a biblical concept. It comes from Psalm 119, 105. You've heard it in a different translation, but this is in the Living Bible. Your words are a flashlight to light my path ahead of me and keep me from stumbling. If you're stumbling, it means you're not spending time in God's Word. Because God says, I'll give you enough light to make it through today. You don't get this whole storehouse of grace and knowledge and wisdom that you get to pull out when you want. Go to the little God ATM machine. Oh God, I need 10% today. God says, no, I'll give you enough today to take the steps I want you to take today. And tomorrow you come back to me and I'll give you the steps tomorrow that you take. It's a flashlight. You got just enough to see the next step you're supposed to take. And if you're far from God, he hasn't moved. You have. It's one of the beautiful things about Celebrate Recovery. It's a 12-step, a Christ-centered 12-step program. And if you'll work the steps, if you'll go through those steps in God's power, 
Step 12 is you turn around and you start helping someone else behind you because God doesn't heal you for you. God heals you to help someone else coming up the mountain. Someone else who's taking the same steps that you're taking. Imagine how many people we will connect with if everybody here starts following God with all of their heart and then looking for someone else to help up the mountain. Because I've got a set of experiences you don't have. You have a set of experiences I don't have. God wants all of us reaching out, connecting with others. Does this make sense to anyone? Okay, yeah, three people. So what's your next step? You're not supposed to map out the whole thing. What is the next step, the thing you need to do today to get back on your journey or to start your journey? Some of you need to step across the line of faith today and say, I've never surrendered to God. Today, Easter 2011 may be your spiritual birthday. What is it? Write down what your next step is. Is it, is it to get into CR? Is it to get involved in small groups? Is it to get to start reading your Bible on a daily basis? Is it to, to go to someone that you've not gone to? What is it? What is your next step? And here's the promise from God in Philippians 1.6. God is the one who began this good work in you. Whatever it is that's good in you, God began it. And I'm certain that he won't stop before, it's com- before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns. You can't. God designed you so that you can't do this race on your own. If you're still doing step one over and over, you've been trying to do it in your power. And today you need to surrender to God's plan for your life. And get back on what he wants you to do. God wants to help you be a finisher. And I want to show you just a brief clip of the 1968 Olympics, Summer Olympics in Mexico. I'm willing to bet none of you remember who won the marathon that day. But millions of people remember John Stephen Aquari. He was from Tanzania. He was one of the favorites to win the race. He had a terrible accident somewhere midway in the race. He was bruised. He was bleeding. Here's as he's entering the stadium an hour after everyone else has completed the race. Watch this last bit. Afterwards, it was written, Today we have seen a young African runner who symbolizes the finest in the human spirit. A performance that gives true dignity to sport. A performance that lifts sport out of the category of grown men playing at games. A performance that gives meaning to the word courage. Perhaps the words of John Stephen Aquari epitomize all that is right in the human spirit. When asked why he did not quit, he said simply, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. The light in this Tanzanian runner is a beacon to us all. To endure to the end. To finish the race however long and hard the road. I could come out of Scripture. Your duty is to finish the race that God has put before you, no matter how long or how hard the road. You weren't born to start a race. You were born to finish a race. And so what I desire is that, that you discover what God has put you on the planet for, that you begin serving God so that when you stand before him someday, because the Bible says that when we die, it is appointed for men and women to die once, and after that comes judgment. If your name is not found written in the book of life, you are cast away from God. He says, I do not know you, and you spend eternity in hell. 
But if your name is written in the book of life, if you're a family member of Jesus Christ, he says, come into my kingdom. But what I want you to have, I want, I want you to be able to do is I want you to be able to stand before God someday and to be able to say, Tetelestai, I finished what you called me to do. Would you bow your heads? This Christian life is, is not for wimps. I don't, know, I don't know where people got the thinking that, that Christianity is for weak people. Jesus Christ is the strongest individual that I've ever read about, ever met. There was not a, a bit of weakness in him. Now, he was meek. He was gentle. He was humble. And people mistake that for weakness. The men, I think, are the most godly men, are sold out to Jesus Christ, and they're sold out to their families in that order. The men, honestly, that I think are the weakest men, are sold out to their jobs and themselves. There are women in this room who are hungry for godly men to step up and lead. And there are women in this room that are pushing their men. They're playing the role of the Holy Spirit. That job's occupied. You cannot push someone else into becoming the individual that God wants them to be. But what I want you to do right now is I want you to say to God, what do you want me to do now? If you're willing to pray that, you just silently in your mind, God, what do you want me to do now? Then draw a line in the sand, step across, and never go back. Father, you've heard the prayers of your people, and it's my prayer today that this Resurrection Sunday would be a life-changing point for everyone here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.